Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter. That's Gray with an E with me, Michael Krasny, where each week we bring you an in-depth, internationally-based and interactive interview with newsmakers and opinion shapers, experts and artists and innovators on our expanding and diverse podcast. And you can learn more about us and join our exciting and growing community, as well as discover who we previously have had with us or will be interviewing by simply going directly to our website. That's Gray Matter, again, graywithane.show. And today we find out about the world of cryptocurrency and the crypto economy by speaking with the leading executive from one of the world's fastest crypto exchanges, the first to go public, the sometimes described as Amazon of assets, Coinbase. Emily Choi is Coinbase president and COO. She was eight years with LinkedIn as their vice president of corporate development before joining Coinbase's founder, Brian Armstrong, in March of 2018 as vice president of business, data, and international. And we welcome Emily Choi, President Choi. Good to have you with us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm such a big fan. Thank you for that, and we're delighted to have you. I hope we can maybe demystify some of cryptocurrency. In fact, do something I usually don't do. Um, go right to a question. There are lots of them. I have lots of them, too, but usually I talk with uh, whoever is a guest. In your case, I'm making an exception here by going to the first question I'm looking at, which is uh, from uh, a listener named Bo uh, Cordell, and thank you for the question, Bo, in Charleston, South Carolina. He says, at this point, uh, there are thousands of cryptocurrencies. Do you think that number will continue to grow, or do you expect it to shrink with a few coins rising above the rest? Crystal ball, but it's a good question to start with. It's a great question to start with. Um, in general, I think that the world will become more and more tokenized, i.e., I think that everything is going to become digital in some way. So if you look at a large building in New York City, um, that building will eventually become tokenized in such a way that you, Michael, can own a piece of it, a fractional piece of it, once it's digitized on the blockchain. Um, and and so the answer is yes, I think there will be thousands, if not millions of, of tokenized assets. Now, the second part of that question is also really important. Will there be assets that over time accumulate more value because they're higher quality assets? Yes, because I think it would it would mimic the same patterns that you see in traditional assets as well. When you say token, it strikes me because there are those who say crypto should be changed to token, that crypto has kind of a connotation to being secret and maybe even sinister or something along mm -hmm. those lines. Uh, and it makes me think of the fact that a lot of people associate cryptocurrency with, well, sort of sinister type things like terrorism and black market and uh, dark web and all of those sorts of things, um, which is unfortunate because it sort of seems to many of us like the way where currency is going. In fact, some say maybe cash is dead. Uh, that may be too strong an initial pronouncement, but what are your thoughts about mm -hmm. both of those things? I mean, about just the word crypto, I'm being a little semanticist here, but uh, and also the fact that um, maybe cash is dead. The word choice is so interesting. I, I agree with you that some people perceive it as a dark word. And in some cases, I think that's why Web3, the terminology Web3, the terminology digital assets has become synonymous with crypto. So pick your name that you feel um, is appropriate for this. Um, you know, there's there's some nuance between Web3 and crypto, but in general, I, I do think that some people perceive crypto as this 
negative thing. Um, the I, I do want to call out one thing you said, because I think it's super important. The irony to me of some of this kind of perception of, oh, you know, blockchain and crypto is used for nefarious activity is that activity is actually trackable on the blockchain. So um, I think Michael Morell, who is the former CIA director, he he put out this really interesting piece referencing that, you know, they, they did a sample size. And I think that there's any, there, it's estimated that cash transactions have somewhere like two to 5% of those transactions are estimated to be illegal, um, money laundering and such. And crypto, when they did a sample set, less than 0.2%. So Again, the numbers could could kind of bounce around a little bit, but in general, I think that there's just a misperception that somehow, you know, you can you can somehow tr- track cash transactions in a way that you can't when it's truly the opposite. But there is a need for regulation, and in fact, I think Brian Armstrong has said, and you've said publicly, we're ready. We want to be regulated. We want what you want is one regulator, basically. Yeah, right? yeah. Coinbase actually, ironically, leaned very early into regulation. Um, and I think that the intuition that Brian and Fred, our, our co-founder, had at the time was that if you touch people's money, you have to be regulated. You want to make sure that there are certain controls in place. You want to make sure that customers are always protected because it is money. And so we have been really kind of vociferous about making sure that there is more clear regulation in the United States. T- today, Michael, there are three major crypto competitors in the world. And we are the only ones who are in the United States and based in the United States. And I think the danger of not having clearer kind of pro-entrepreneur regulation in the United States is that a lot of activity is just going to continue to move offshore. And if you can kind of compare this to the, you know, the, the technology boom that happened in Silicon Valley in the 1990s and 2000s and so on, um, it would be like pushing that off to a different country or region because you didn't understand it. Well, speaking of different regions and the like, I'm looking at a question here from Chris Lafayette, and thanks for the question, Chris. He wants to know, with all the private cryptocurrency uh, transactions in China being considered illegal, what do you feel is the likelihood of other countries taking this stance? Well, so China is China, so let's just acknowledge that. And I think that right now the Chinese system is such where the analogy I would use is if, if a driver you know, dies on the road, you close the whole road down or something like that, that it, it's it's a very, very kind of strong black and white response. I think that um, what we're seeing actually ironically is that the EU, Australia, Japan, Singapore, a number of other regions and countries are actually leading in some clear, sensible regulation for crypto. And the U.S. is a, is a little bit getting left behind by that. Now, I feel a lot more excited about recent kind of prospects because what I'm seeing is there's a lot of bipartisan energy around legislating crypto in a sensible manner. So we've, we've seen some recent bills introduced that, that we're hopeful about. Um, we've seen Patrick McHenry and Maxine Waters partner on stablecoin legislation. So we're hoping that some of this new legislation comes through because it is so important for the United States to lead in tech entrepreneurship as it always has. So when you're moving toward different legislation, how does that correlate with being an apolitical company, which is how Mm. you declared yourself? Yeah, great question. So I believe it was about two years ago that we declared that we were an apolitical company. And what that meant was simply that 
we don't want to bring politics to the office. We don't want to be in a situation where you and I are having an argument about a candidate or a policy issue that is unrelated to the mission of our company. And the reason that we don't want that is because it's distracting and it's actually not productive to the ambitious mission that we have. The mission that Coinbase has is to increase economic freedom in the world. That is a huge, huge mission. So anything that directly relates to that mission, i.e. crypto legislation, is totally on the table. Things that are unrelated to the mission are best left separate from the work environment. And I'm prompted to ask you a little bit about the origins of crypto, and then I want to get into some of uh, what you're doing about the down economy that we're all facing and that we're all kind of struggling with here. And I know there were layoffs about 1,100 back in June. Is that right? That's um, right. We can we can talk about that more. I'd like to talk about that more. But um, your company, Coinbase, was in 2021 selected by Inc. as Company of the Year, and it's gotten a lot of praise for success and the like. We'll talk about some of the concerns that certainly are facing you, facing not only you, but so many companies, uh, not only in this business. Um, but in, in Inc., which said your company of the year, it said, how can any store of value be based, let me get your response to this, you may have seen this, on an algorithm that solves a crypto cryptologic problem tied to something called a blockchain ledger created by a pseudonymous code ninja nicknamed Satoshi Nakamoto. I mean, it's phrased in a way that almost makes it sound funny, but it's, it is at the heart of, of cryptocurrency. And to the heart of, other than getting religion down in Buenos Aires with the high inflation, what led Brian Armstrong, your co-founder, to really establish Coinbase? Yeah. The white paper I'm talking about. Right. Well, I think... It, and it's funny, I, I, Brian tells a story about when he read the Bitcoin white paper and call it 2011, he actually feared that he was too late, that he was too late to being a part of this whole thing. Um, and what I always tell people is like that that should tell you it's never too late to join. I think that the, the innovation behind Bitcoin was that it is hard coded to be scarce. Um, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin the scarcity is a major driver of the value. Um, the amount of new Bitcoin that's going to be mined is declining over time in a predictable way. The, the way that it was built is just so elegant in its simplicity. Um, and so I think that, you know, candidly, I think this has been a really interesting year because we've had this, this notion of, okay, is Bitcoin a, a hedge to inflation? And it turned out that in this market environment, it certainly was not. And I think that that was because of the speculative behavior that happened, um, especially given some of the macro economy issues, as well as some of the credit crunches that happened in the crypto economy. So um, I guess what I would say is it's early. It's very early. And how are you planning with respect to the winter ahead or the down economy that we're facing now? Mm -hmm. Well, Coinbase has been through four crypto cycles at this point, and so we're made of steel. We just we power through them. The way that we think about it is we rigorously, rigorously, rigorously do scenario planning. And so we're always trying to look ahead to make sure that we have at least three years of cash given any type of market scenario. Um, because crypto is fairly unpredictable, the thing that we can predict is the operating expenses. And so that's where we have rigor and discipline. Ultimately, what we're striking the right balance of is, and this is a very, very hard art to do, is make sure we're investing in the future and not kind of being fearful or having a scarcity mindset, 
while at the same time making sure that we have operational rigor and discipline and are doing the things we need to do to reduce cost, for example, on the marketing side or the professional services side that are kind of nice to have in certain markets. That's a pretty delicate balance, isn't it? It's, it's, I would argue it's probably more complex than just about any other business I can think of. But I also think it's the excitement of being here is just that you're constantly challenged. Every day is a new learning curve for me. I've been here for four and a half years and counting. And I look forward to every challenge that is posed to me every day. How did you move from LinkedIn to Coinbase, though? I mean, that's not a particularly conventional trajectory. Right. I loved LinkedIn. I, I joined LinkedIn when it was 400 people in private. I went through the private to public journey. I went from the public to being acquired by Microsoft Journey, and I left when it was 13,000 people. It was so special to me, particularly because um, Jeff Weiner, I, I had worked with my many parts of my career, Reed Hoffman, just incredible mentors. But there was definitely a point in my career there where I was getting too comfortable. And I, I recognized that I wasn't kind of pushing myself the way I used to. And so I recognized that if I was going to take a big move, I wanted it to be something that was uncomfortable and somewhere where I could just have miles and miles of learning ahead. So I met Brian Armstrong and I still remember the day we were sitting in this, it was a rainy day. We were sitting in this little conference room and he was talking about crypto as a new form of money, crypto as a new form of financial system, crypto as a new form of technology platform. And I had tingles down my spine because I knew that he was talking about the future and I didn't understand it all. I was very intimidated, but I knew that I had to be a part of it. So let's talk a little about the future of money. Um, I remember doing um, a job for Visa International many years ago with the dot-com world just bursting forth and burgeoning. And uh, we're talking about speculation and prognosticating and the sorts of things that you wouldn't even imagine possible. Um, and we're, we're still at that stage. You're talking about Web3 earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people don't even know that Web3 is on the horizon, that it's almost, that it's really for all purposes purposes here already. How do you see Coinbase and crypto fitting into what you're envisioning vis-a-vis -vis Web3? Yeah. So I think it's important for your listeners to kind of understand how we think about what Web3 is. So when I think about Web1, which was the original internet, it was kind of static internet pages. And I call that read-only. You were consuming uh, stock quote or a sports score or whatever. And it was an incredible thing. It was, it was shocking at the time. It was a very kind of static experience. Then um, the, we got into something called web two. Web two is what I call read, write. So this idea that there's more direct interaction between individuals through things like social networking. So it was the era of Twitter and, and YouTube and um, Facebook and so on. It was an incredible time of entrepreneurship and innovation, but what it lacked was something where the user could actually participate in the formation of this, this new thing. So you essentially became the product, even though you didn't necessarily agree to that. You, Michael, contributed content connections to those applications. And maybe you got some value from it, but you didn't directly participate. Web3 to me is about read, write, and own. 
ownership is the key principle here. The idea here is that through tokens, you get to participate in this new system. Now there's all sorts, of, it's, it's early. So it's all, there's all sorts of forms in which this could take place. But this idea that you can port your identity from application to application, this idea that you can port your content from application to application, this idea that you might have a say uh, in the governance or development of an application because you contributed to that and because you have token ownership, those are very powerful concepts. And so I think it's very early, but I think that the reason people are so excited about Web3 is because it enables you to address some of the ails that that we saw in Web2. Some of those ills also get back to the need for regulation. And what about the fact that Twitter and Facebook, and they don't want regulation necessarily like you do? Can I get you a comment on that? Um, I do think we're slightly different beasts in the sense that we are we are dealing with people's money at, at Coinbase and in crypto. And so I think the onus of dealing with people's money is kind of a different level of, of regulation. I think that what in general, the, the thing about regulation for me is I would love to have a system in which it's we're all kind of agreeing on the principles of like what we want to achieve and we're leaving it to companies to kind of on how to get there. There might be a number of different mechanisms to get to the same output um, and more efficient ways and so on. And so for Coinbase, you know, for us, like one specific thing that I would say to you is that we deal with kind of an archaic regulatory system. Many of the laws that so-called apply to crypto right now are from the 1920s. Obviously, at that time, the idea of digital assets couldn't have ever been contemplated. The the, the nuance of 24-7, instant settlement, no middleman, all these kinds of different concepts. Like so, So we just want an evolved, fresh perspective as we look to regulate these in a in a new way. And a question from Juan Robles from Mexico City. Thank you for the question, Juan. He wants to know, what do you think are the hurdles to have a global economy that uses cryptocurrency? Mm, it's such a great question. I mean, that is actually the reason we're so excited about crypto. It it has the potential to be the true global norm. Um, I think the barriers, if I'm being really real here, are just that there's kind of country by country rules and regulations around money and around money transmission and, um, you know, KYC, which is know your customer, you know, the, the data that you have to collect on behalf of customers and so on. What I think is really novel, and I think that we should watch this very closely, is that the EU recently came up with a with a, a system called Mika. It's going to be implemented in in years to come. But this is the first kind of regional pass at at crypto where crypto regulation, such that we'll see how things benefit when the countries all have the similar framework around all these different concepts. And this is uh, going to be Brave New World. It's up ahead. You can almost predict it as inevitable. It's inevitable. Um, I think that, you know, there's some, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but you know that whole saying of like, first they they dismiss you, then they laugh at you, then they go after you or something like that. Like we're in the phase where I, I think um, it is clear that this this system, this ship has sailed, that this is the genie is out of the bottle. And now it's about making sure that we have 
a sensible framework and an approach for protecting customers and also making sure digital innovation thrives. Because the more that we do that, I think we're going to have just this incredible um, economic freedom and prosperity that will result from digital assets flourishing. It's uh, heartening to hear your optimism. And uh, I always like saying when views of things, particularly where money is concerned, uh, let, let me be a little devil's advocate here and just get your response. I mean, the stocks are down, the layoffs, uh, this is maybe just an economy which you can bruise through. And like you said, tough as steel and all the rest of that. But uh, right now, and I, I know you can't talk about this, um, we've got investigation by the SEC, we've got crashes in cryptocurrency markets, recent problems that you had with bank payments, uh, which were halted. Uh, company strong, but those kinds of things are a real part of the vicissitudes of any company, and you can stay strong and you can continue to foster trust in all of your many customers. But when those things come up, um, they do affect the perception, and the perception sometimes is a reality, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, Michael, I think, you know, just this is this is a, a high level thought. Ultimately, we view ourselves as a technology company. And I've worked at a lot of technology companies. And what happens is if you ship a bug, oh, there was a bug. Okay, we'll go fix it. When you're dealing with people's money, you ship a bug and oh my gosh, like they're there's a much broader implication for that. And I think that's what happened with some of these things where um, we had to stop withdrawals for a second to fix a bug. It had nothing to do with the soundness of the financial system, but these things can become memes and they're, you're right, they can be quite damaging. And I think one of the things that we need to do a much better job of as a company is just making sure that we get out there just proactively and say on Twitter or whatever, there was a bug we screwed up. We're about to fix it. It has nothing to do with, you know, the fundamental soundness of our, of our system. And I think you're right that, um, we just have, this is our first time in the public arena. So it's easier to operate as a private company. We chose to go public because we wanted to make sure that crypto was, out there, that it was transparent, that that the, the the company and the space is out there operating, getting audited by a top auditor, and, and just everything is is really kind of clear um, and transparent to the world. And so I guess this is a very long-winded way of me saying to you that you're right. We have an onus and responsibility to kind of do better and better and to be more and more transparent. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. You're also a distributed company, and why that decision? I mean, all, yeah. all work is remote now, right? Totally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Historically, I was one of those people from Silicon Valley who had this total bias towards everybody must be at the centralized headquarters at all times. That was the model that I grew up with, and I think it's it's it is it's the it continues to be the model for a lot of companies. What we were recognizing um, ahead of COVID, even, and I think Brian was the first to see this, was that there was incredible talent in crypto across the world. They didn't necessarily have the Stanford CS degree. They didn't necessarily have the same connections that everybody else did in web two. They might be in Uzbekistan or something and they're coding and, and just having incredible crypto insights and we're, we're meeting them through Twitter. And so I think the thing, the innovation of, of being remote first is you can access the best talent anywhere in the world 
It has been challenging in terms of onboarding folks and making sure that they get up to speed as quickly as possible on how we do things, how to run an incident, how to do this and that. But the positives have have outweighed the the negatives. And I think that we'll continue to like refine the model to get the best out of it. I'm going to go to more of our questions in just a moment. We're talking to Emily Choi, who is president of Coinbase and uh, it is a distributed company. It's also, um, I mean, you got all this uh, links, a lot of other things that I want to talk about, but I thought there was a sense of Coinbase centers being part of your whole vision and your whole plan. Um, if you're talking about kind of like centers of excellence with respect to regional areas. Yes. Okay. We have, um, we have incredible talent everywhere in the world where we can capitalize on the best opportunities. And I, I think the example that I would give you is that we actually have a New York office. Now, everyone can be fully remote and everybody can continue to work from wherever they want to work. But New York continues to be the financial center of the universe. And so the relationships, the interaction with customers and so on, those are best held in the New York office. And so that's how we we kind of get the best of both worlds in the sense that anybody can continue to work from home, but they can also capitalize on the office, the relationships in that central hub. So, I mean, the vision is that there are different centers that can be local, regardless of the fact that you're just wanted to get that on the record. Also want yeah. to get on the record something about mergers and acquisitions, which is also kind of in your bailiwick. And uh, yeah. Got how many startups now? Uh, let me just get that on the record too with Coinbase. Yeah, so um, we have Coinbase Corp Dev, which is all the acquisitions we've done, and then we've done Coinbase Ventures, which is investing in I would say probably more than two hundred fifty companies at this point. So when I first joined Coinbase, um, I joined to do M and A. That's what I've done my whole career, and the reason that I love doing M and A is because I love being around founders and entrepreneurs. I just I think it's an incredible way to inject a company with entrepreneurial DNA. So Brian and I had a, a plan about going after acquisitions. And in fact, your, your your question about doing things during a crypto winter, two of the most important acquisitions we ever did were during the last crypto winter. One was Zappo, which helped us become the number one regulated crypto custodian um, in the world. And then Tagomi, which helped us launch our prime brokerage product for institutions. On the venture side, the thing I said to Brian when I first joined was that I'd love to I'd love to kind of open up a Coinbase Ventures. And he said, great, write a blog post about it. I wrote a blog post about it. He read it and he was like, great. And I said, now what? Because I was used to these kind of places where you go have to go through 20 people to kind of get the approvals. He's, he said, just ship it. And I said, ship it? And he said, yes. And I shipped it. What that meant was that we just started using cash from the balance sheet to invest in incredible companies that were doing things in the crypto economy. The reason we did this was a fewfold. One is we get incredible insights and data from these companies that we invest in. So maybe we start to see that certain sectors or areas are taking off in crypto that we might not have seen otherwise. Second is we get to know the best talent in the space and we we continue to build the best relationships. In fact, many of the people that we fund came from Coinbase. The Coinbase alumni group is incredibly strong. We call them the Coinbase mafia. And then the third is that many of these companies that we invest in, we want to acquire later. Mm -hmm. So Bison Trails is an example of a company that we invested in, we kept seeing great traction from them, and then we acquired them. So we're really proud about the portfolio we have. 
Yeah, I've got a great quote from you. The biggest struggle for Coinbase is no dearth of opportunity. Yep. <laughs> kind of sums Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Another listener in Honolulu. Uh, again, thank you for these questions. Dalek Lopez Waterman wants to know, what is uh, cryptocurrency's relationship to high energy use and its carbon footprint as a whole? Mm. Well, I think that this is also, um, <laughs> it, it's... To me, it's it's a little bit of of this other myth about just Bitcoin being bad for the environment. And I think that we can all acknowledge that Bitcoin mining is an energy intensive process. Um, but we do believe that Bitcoin is actually much more efficient than the traditional banking and golding mining businesses on a global scale. The other thing that I think folks have to realize is that the economic incentives that are inherent to Bitcoin mining are actually helping drive sustainable energy innovation because miners basically can seek to increase profits by lowering their electricity costs. Um, and, and so they're going to choose forms of, of things like renewable energy, which becomes the cheapest option. So I think that there's there's more to this tale than some of the press would have, have folks believe. And I think that you, you're seeing a lot of... Um, pardon the pun, energy being invested in making sure that the the kind of most renewable sources of energy are being used going forward on mining and so on. When I think of energy's relationship of all this, Emily, it can't help uh, thinking, well, I was sort of musing just the other night about when I was a boy going and uh, on a regular weekly basis, taking a bank book and making a deposit. And everything. Wouldn't it be good if we had, I've always been a big advocate of financial literacy and economic literacy, if we had kids learn about cryptocurrency at an early stage, to be a part of the education of kids. Does that make sense to you? Totally. Um, actually, one of the most kind of innovative mayors right now is Eric Adams in New York. And he is- He, he is wanted a salary in crypto, didn't he? He wanted he did. Coinbase. He wanted yeah. a salary in crypto. And, and he talked about how he wants to start implementing some of this into the New York City school curriculum just so so kids can start getting acquainted with how this all works. And I think it's just it's great for so many reasons. It's great for financial literacy and it's also great for just thinking about how can we get kids educated earlier on on just the new forms of technology that are arising because they're probably going to have better ideas than most of us by the time they get to high school college stage. I'm going to go to some more questions in a moment but also on my mind is just from your perspective, as you reflect, being a woman in this tech world, you described it as being tech, um, a lot of uh, problems and a lot of uh, obstacles for many women. There have been books about it and so forth. I know you take pride in Coinbase's doing a lot of hiring of women. Talk about things as you see them unfolding now. Yeah. You know, my own history has been, I've just been so rich with mentors who were largely male, who helped me get to the place that I needed to be to be successful. And so I always think about that when I think about how can others kind of mimic in any way some of some of these learnings. An example to me is just, you know, Jeff Weiner, whom I worked with early on at Yahoo and then later at LinkedIn. There were times when he was so hard with me, but it was so kind in terms of what I needed to do to be able to kind of be successful. So example, there was one time when I was sitting in the back of a room in an important meeting and he said to me, Emily, I never want to see you sit in the back of the room again. Always take a seat at the table. Um, there was a moment where there was another executive who was being a little nasty to me. 
And I kind of slumped in my seat and just turned expressionless. And Jeff said to me, be a spectator to your own thoughts. Think about how you look in the room and are you poised and confident or are you passive aggressive? And so I've had him and others, a select few others who have just been incredibly generous. I think it's very hard to give feedback like that to somebody. It's just, it's, it's so much easier to be like, oh, you know what? They'll figure it out some other way. And so for me as a woman in the workplace, getting that stuff early on was so invaluable to helping me kind of be who I am. Um, and so I feel like I can sit in any room and just hang with any of them. I think there's crypto has a little bit of a bad meme about being a bro culture. I haven't found it to be that way. I've found it to be incredibly inclusive. Um, people are very generous with their time. There's so many concepts that are, are challenging in advance and people are so generous to kind of share their thoughts and insights. So I've not had the experience that I think others might perceive me to have had. Well, I wonder, this may be kind of a social political question, but there are many who say that the kind of good fortune you've had, kind, generous mentors and men who have helped you along, uh, there are those who say it's harder now with all this Me Too stuff because mm. if men show kindness or generosity, sometimes it can be misinterpreted. And I don't, You want to comment on that? Well, that's I, I think that this is this goes back to me to be to this whole thing about to be a really good mentor is actually quite hard. It means that you have to have uncomfortable conversations with somebody and they might this isn't me, too, but it's more of a I might not have reacted so well if I were a different person to just being like, hey, you can't tell me that I'm slumped in my seat or you can't tell me to. it's it's also about how you take the feedback. Right. Um I think that, you know, there, there's another really important mentor of mine is Kevin Scott. He's the CTO of Microsoft, and he used to be the VP of engineering for for uh, LinkedIn. And we were having this incredible conversation once because I was kind of tearing up because somebody had had been a little harsh with me. And he told me that he was the most sensitive person. And I said, you're sensitive? Like, I would have never perceived that. And he said... Along his career, when he was getting his PhD, people would just just be so vitriolic and, and horrible to him as he was going through his dissertation work. And at some point he had to decide, is it about me or is it about the, the, the work that I stand for? If it's about the work I stand for, screw them all. Like just, just stand behind the work and be proud of it and move forward. And there was something that let that kind of like unlocked in me where I told you before we started, Michael, that I'm a very sensitive person. And I think that these people who, who kind of shared very personal things with me to help me get better, it's unusual. Like you're not going to find these, you're not going to find, and, and not every mentor is going to be the right person for every person. And so it's magic when it happens, but it's, it's going to be very rare. It is, if you'll forgive my figure of speech, you're a valuable asset to have, especially when mm -hmm. you're moving up in the ranks as, mm -hmm. as you did. Let me go to some more questions that are coming. A very important question here. Uh, from, uh, well, these are all important questions. I don't want to give any of them uh, diminished value or status, but uh, questions, a number of questions are coming in about security and how you sort of really protect the money. I mean, there are people who've lost fortunes in the crypto market, and uh, there are people who have, you know, had money that's just been sort of almost, I mean, there's some bad actors in this whole industry that we're talking about, this ecosystem. of So what do you do to protect your people's investments, money, mm -hmm. security? 
So this was another insight that I think Brian had very early on, which sounds very obvious now, which I don't think was totally obvious back then, which is invest in security at all, security at all costs, even if you're a startup with very, very little money. And so Brian inherently knew that we had to be the most trusted and easy to use. To be the most trusted, you have to invest heavily in security protocols, procedures, and a team. We have a chief security officer who has been here over six and a half years. This guy is just a, a total superstar and he's built a team around him that look ahead at every corner you could possibly think of who anticipate new scenarios, who have threat detection, who, who just, who do everything they can on the physical and, and digital security side. And so what happens during a crypto winter is we're going to cut resources. We're not going to cut them in security because we always know that the brand and the promise that we make to our customers is inherently embedded in this most trusted. Well, apropos again of what you're saying is a question from Jim Barnes in Kansas City. Thank you, Jim. He wants to know, I see cryptocurrencies as the future of everyday transactions, but they seem to be treated more like investment vehicles right now. What will it take for a currency to be less volatile? It's mm. right to the heart of the security. Yeah. You know, I think that just when we go, when we look at new categories of technology, um, look at Amazon back in the day when e-commerce was a new technology, look at um, Tesla when self-driving was a new category, these are fundamentally um, just, these new categories are volatile because they're new. They're emerging. You don't know, um, you know which technology will prove out. You don't know exactly how this all kind of plays out. What you do know is that the promise of the overall blockchain infrastructure is so important. And you wanna kind of believe very much that there is, is great value there. So, what I would say is I always tell folks when they're thinking about, oh, I'm interested in Bitcoin and interested in Ethereum. Like, how should I think about this? I'm like, you should think about what is your appetite for risk? These are, these are going to be volatile categories just because they're new categories. And think about for some people, they still want to participate in some way. So maybe it's 1% of, of their, their net worth that they want to kind of invest in, in, more seasoned cryptocurrency. There, there are certain folks who want to take more risk, but there will be volatility just as there is in any other asset category in, in, the, in the nascent stages. And you kind of just have to get comfortable with that. Well, it's sort of, um, I used to compare the stock market to putting money on horses or playing Vegas. Uh, I mean, I realize that that can be a little bit facile, but the reality is um, the, the, the lack of stability in the market is what scares a lot of people. The fact that this, like any other market, has its vicissitudes and has its ups and downs and can't be predicted. But how are you supposed to be able to predict a market to begin with? I mean, it's a foolish notion, isn't it? Especially this market. <laughs> Especially this market, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned Ethereum. Here's a question from uh, Javier in Mexico City. Uh, Javier Alfaro, what benefits do you think Ethereum switch to proof of stake will bring? So again, it's it's early days. I think the merge is the biggest thing I would say about the merge is that it is proof that a large decentralized community at scale can put forth massive new technological innovation um, in a meaningful way. 
I think that the the two hopes of this merge, there's probably others, but the the two that kind of stand out to me, one is again, the energy consumption usage. It just shrinks dramatically as as we move from proof of work to proof of stake. Some estimates are as high as 99.95% you know, energy consumption reduction as, as Ethereum moves and shifts, but we have we have to see that still. And the other is just that it becomes um a more facile development platform for developers. And so that just leads to all sorts of great kind of building blocks for the future for great technology products to be built on Ethereum. So, and that, and that leads to things like scalability help and all that kind of stuff. So, so you probably, Michael, have heard that folks complain about the scalability issues with Ethereum and some of these different blockchains. This is a step in the direction of starting to solve some of that scalability issue. More questions for you from our listeners. Ed, uh, Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. Given that most nations will attempt to protect their own positions in the currency exchange hierarchy, what long-term goal do proponents of cryptocurrency envision as models toward a single currency, hedging strategies, or something else? Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of protectionism country protectionism, state protectionism is directly at odds with the whole concept and ethos of cryptocurrency. Because cryptocurrency by its very kind of design is global in nature, 24-7, instant settlement, no middleman. I mean, it's let's just be clear, like a lot of the principles here are utopian in some ways, but I think that there's always a pragmatic view to like how how did the how do we get to that place? The value I think that folks are, are going to continue to, to see more and more of is that instant settlement, the lower cost, the middleman not in the way, it ends up just being a much more efficient financial system. And at some point, you know, the, the countries that adopt it are going to see those benefits and the countries that don't see it are going to see it's just a free markets thing. They'll start to see the benefits and they'll have to embrace it on behalf of their customers. I think that there's as long as there is sensible regulation here globally, I think that it's it's a net benefit to to humanity and to the universe. It's just the way to get there. It might be, might it might there might be some countries that become more protectionist in the interim, and I think that's what we're really hoping does not happen in in the United States, because we want to see so much of this flourish here. Well, when you speak about utopianism and pragmatism, uh, getting a little philosophical here for a moment, but again, the difficulty of moving between those two, particularly when you have. I mean, it strikes me as you have some serious diplomatic challenges here to get global. Accord. We were talking with um, a guest uh, recently, one of the podcasts, one of the episodes about just getting rules about fishing, tuna fishing down, you know, that were the universal that everybody would comply with and, and be uh, accepting or at least have the tendency to want a success. Um, I mean, that's that can be daunting. It can be extremely challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> a few things to think about. One is I think the estimate right now is that one in four households in the United States owns cryptocurrency. So, you know, just apply that lens to the United States and to the world. And just, I, I don't think we ever contemplated that the adoption would be at this rate or, or many folks didn't contemplate that. And so at some point it's kind of like, is it really a fringe movement anymore? I don't, I don't know if, if one in four households owns it in the United States, if it's a fringe movement anymore, if it's actually becoming more of a mainstream thing. 
The other thing is if we can actually achieve bipartisan legislation, and that's like the one thing that we can achieve in a bipartisan way in the United States, that should tell you the potential. We could probably solve world peace, right? Like the, it, it tells you that pragmatic legislators on both sides of the aisle recognize that this is an incredible opportunity for the United States and for others to take place, to, to, to take part in. And let's be clear, it's it's going to be an incredible boon to taxpayer dollars as well if a lot of the innovation thrives in the United States. So I, I, I'm probably an optimistic person by nature, but I think that with what we're seeing with these movements in DC and beyond, I think there's there's hope. There may even be hope for some bipartisan legislation. Huh? <laughs> uh, here's Bob Cordy from Charleston, South Carolina. He wants to know what most excites you about the possibilities of Web 3.0. I think it goes back to this idea that Web 3 is about token ownership. It's about you, Michael, having ownership in the things that matter to you, the applications that matter to you. And how will that manifest? We don't even know yet, but like there's ways in which you might be able to participate in the eventual for how, how that how that entity forms, what decisions that company makes because of your token ownership in it. Um, perhaps you're going to be able to help guide the product direction of that in some way, or you have control over the assets that you're carrying with you, your your identity and so on. Um, so I think we're, we're really early, but th just that concept is what gets me and most folks in the Web3 arena very excited. Were you always on this track to be a COO and be a president? Did you always want or have that ambition? Just curious. You know what? I was perfectly happy. I took a lateral career move from LinkedIn to Coinbase to, to, to head up mergers and acquisitions here. And what happened was I signed my offer in December 2017. If you look back at December 2017, that was pretty much the peak of the last cycle. I joined the company in March 2018, and the crypto market promptly went all the way down. And I was sitting there wondering what I had chosen to do in my career and why I had chosen to do it. And all I could think of was that I just needed to work really hard. There was a lot of tension at Coinbase, a lot of infighting, a lot of implosions happening, and I just chose to keep my head down and work and solve problems. At the end of that period, Brian Armstrong chose to elevate me to COO. And I think the board at the time was probably like, hey, we could get like a very big name COO now. Like there's there's a lot of opportunities. And Brian pounded the table for me and he was like, she was here through the hard times, solved problems, solved operational issues. So now I know she can do the job. It was the greatest test for me. And so I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be in this role, but I unconsciously put myself in that role by solving operational problems when it was the hardest time in the company. And I will forever feel grateful for being given the opportunity to take on that mantle once a lot of those problems were solved. But there are still many problems ahead of you to solve. Oh, yeah. Hey, they never end. They never end, so but one, it's, it's all fun. That's that's the joys of leadership, solving those yeah. problems, right? The joys yeah. and the pains. And uh, here's a question from David Anderson up in Seattle who says, is there a market maker for each cryptocurrency? Does the price go down until a buyer with sufficient coin, he puts in quotation marks, offers a bid to buy? 
There are market makers who participate in a bundle of cryptocurrencies. So it's not like, you know, one is known for only one crypto. In general, if you're a market maker in crypto, you're probably trading a lot of different assets um, based on whatever is hot at the time and kind of the market decides. And so they market makers are, the, are probably some of the most rational, efficient actors that exist. So they they then make a market in those things. Another question from Robert Choge in Los Angeles. Could your guest, uh, again, our guest is Emily Choi of Coinbase, please talk a bit more about the mission statement of Coinbase. What does it mean, quote, to increase economic freedom in the world? Hmm. This is really important to us. So we are a mission first company. And what it means to us to increase economic freedom in the world is that you can actually measure economic freedom in the world. You can measure um, the 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 notion of property rights and longevity and voting rights and so on. For Coinbase, the way that we influence economic freedom is through cryptocurrency. The idea that, you know, you have with your mobile phone essentially the equivalent of a bank or portal in your in your in your pocket. And that enables you to embark in a new world where you can engage with different assets and different features. And it doesn't care what you look like, who you are, what your economic status is, if you're a woman or a man, what color you are, et cetera. And I think that that's very important to the whole concept behind cryptocurrency. It's agnostic because there is no middleman. Um, and so the way that we think about the product strategy that, that tears into that driving economic freedom is how do we drive crypto as a new form of money how do we for drive crypto as a new form of financial system? And how do we drive crypto as a new form of technology platform in the world? Emily, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the federal report, which was released earlier this week. Um, the risk to cryptocurrency markets is really what it's all about. And it says essentially you need more oversight, which you've said Coinbase is strongly in favor of and has been on board and has really the infrastructure for that too. But also enforcement. Um, what needs to be done from your perspective about enforcement and what would you like to see done about enforcement? Mm. I think that it's clear um, that right now it feels like there is rule by enforcement rather than clarity of actual um, regulation. And in general, rule by enforcement doesn't work very well if the rules aren't clear to begin with. So I think our dear chief legal officer kind of gave the analogy that he's going to punish his daughter if she comes home after midnight, but he's not going to set it up in the first place where he made it clear to her that she must be home by 11 p.m., if, if you get the analogy. We want the clear who is in charge of what parts of this and do we have to be home by 11 p.m.? Because then we know the rules of the road. Uh, and we would argue that we also want to make sure that these set of rules and regulations are fresh and reflect the incredible dynamic nature of digital assets and don't unconsciously stifle them. So we want to see a system where there is a clear regulator for um, digital commodities, there is a clear regulator for digital securities, and that we understand what the concepts behind a digital security are so that we can all operate from the exact same level playing field. 
Again, a great challenge, but uh, very well spoken on your part. Douglas Carmichael says, how do you handle when an account holder dies? Can crypto be treated as any other asset for estate planning purposes? You know what? I will have to get back to you on that. I actually don't know the answer to it. Well, I think you may know the answer to this. A question comes to us from Halifax, Canada, from George Butters, who wants to know, is there any future in brick-and-mortar banks? And if so, what are they going to look like? Mm. The, the funny thing is, is I think there's still a great future for the traditional bank. And in fact, I think this is why you're starting to see the traditional banks participate in crypto because they see the opportunity in it. And so in many cases, if you think about Coinbase, we were the original fiat to crypto bridge. We were partnering and we continue to partner directly with banks and financial institutions so that those who have traditional banking relationships and, and want their most of their money in a bank can still participate in the crypto economy by leveraging it. So we we very much partner with the traditional financial system. In fact, um, another example of a, a recent partnership we did was with BlackRock, arguably the most traditional asset manager that exists, because some of their customers want exposure to crypto. They just want it in a in a BlackRock kind of way. And so this is a great way for us to kind of get the best of both worlds. They can get exposure to digital assets, but do it in a way that that is deemed safe and uh, secure and, and so on by BlackRock. Um, so I don't know if you know we're gonna be getting cash out of the ATM in some period of time. Like, I don't know if that, that analogy is still gonna happen in the future, but I think that there's this idea that you're, when you're dealing with people's money, you're still always gonna want some type of human relationship. You're still gonna wanna make sure that your assets are protected, that the regulation is in place, that the people who safeguarded your assets before there. So I think there's a lot of analogies. Another question from Seattle, David Anderson. What happens when the company holding your coin becomes insolvent or goes under? Can you transfer your coin assets to another company? Is it all just numbers of coin, no cash in dollars? Well, so this depends on the institution you're dealing with. So if you saw the recent kind of credit crunch that happened with some of the companies in the crypto economy, um, that was incredibly unfortunate, and I think those cases are still being worked through. Coinbase had zero exposure to any of those cases, and the reason that we had zero exposure to those is because we have incredible risk management processes and procedures and personnel. And I think it speaks to this idea, again, that if you're dealing with people's money and you're, you're in this system, you need to have appropriate, appropriate safeguards and risk management to protect those customers. Question from Jeff in Chicago. Is there some kind of cryptocurrency dilution as every day more and more new coins uh, come online? This is actually very consistent with um, another question you had, which was just, you know, do you believe in a world of tokenization? And if so, won't they proliferate and it become very diluted? And I think the answer is yes. We believe that there will be a world where there's thousands, if not millions of tokens. We also believe that over time, the most interesting, best products, best technology, best whatever backed up tokens are going to end up rising to the top. Um, and and so I think that you'll see, you'll see the free market effects of, of how that kind of happens over time, where some of them will just accrue more value over time because of the highest quality. Well, we've been talking a lot about regulation. I think this may be an appropriate question to end with, um, asking you again to put on your uh, prognosticating goggles or at least uh, 
tea leaves reading, uh, Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina wants to know, here in the U.S. it appears that some form of cryptocurrency regulation is inevitable. If it were up to you, how would this play out? And secondly, how do you think this will actually play out? Um, I think that what we really want to see is we currently have two different agencies that are, there's some unclear kind of rules of the road about the swim lanes between those two agencies. So we want more clarity about who owns what and how that is determined. We want more clarity about what is a digital security. And um, we generally just want um, a positive disposition towards the future of technological technological innovation in the United States. So we want to we want to have a world where there are sandboxes. There's there's places for these companies to innovate in the United States without constant threat of enforcement actions for for you know any reason. What I think will play out, I think that what we're going to see probably, I mentioned that we're we're probably going to see this Waters McHenry stablecoin bill come out first and and you know hopefully that that will go through. There's some incredible other um legislation that that's being proposed from bipartisan Stabenow and Bozeman. And I guess what I'd, I my my hypothesis is that some of this legislation will come out and it'll be like imperfect, but it's the best thing to kind of get moving in the direction of more clear legislation. And so we welcome it. And so that's my best guess about what's going to happen there. It's a reasonable guess. And uh, you are a great guest. Thank you so much for being with us. I mean, I Michael, it's super fun. Love Super your clarity fun. of thinking and uh, your optimism, whether people agree with you or not. I think it's uh, infectious. So thank you so much for being a part of this episode. An honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. And thank you all for being with us for this episode as well. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.